take your balloons to the next level as we delve deeper into what truly makes a professional balloon artist with your host, Zivi Kivi. Now, welcome to the Balloon Artist Podcast. Hello, Balloon Artist Podcast Nation. This is Zivi Kivi, and we are back. This is season four, the season about decor. I'm so excited to come back into podcasting and to share with you sometime in the next few months, every week on Friday. And today it's the beginning of season four, and we start with a bang. And that is with the interview with Guido Verhoff the king of decor and of huge projects, a really nice guy with really uh, interesting opinions that are so deep that I could talk with him for two hours. In fact, I did talk with him for two hours and for your convenience have splitted the interview into two episodes. So you're getting a double dose of Guido Verhoff himself starting right after this. This show and this season is sponsored by Brody's Balloons. Brody's Balloons from Chicago, United States of America, um, the sponsor of this season. And I just want to mention, I was uh, lucky enough to teach in Chicago with Brody's, in Brody's Balloons warehouse, and I met all of their team. And I just want to share, every single one of them just loves balloons. And I was so touched on the emotional level to see that, to see how they handled the orders and how they helped me in preparation for class. And they just understand balloons, they love balloons and they care about their customers and they care about the industry. Talk about uh, supporting all kinds of uh, ventures that help balloon artists. So with that said, I want to go right into the interview with Guido. Verhoff. See you at the other end. Hello, Balloon Artist Podcast Nation. This is Zivi Kivi, and this is Season 4, Chapter 1. I'm so excited to have Guido Verhoff, the one and only from Holland or Netherlands, in this show opening Season 4. And in case you're not familiar with Guido Verhoff, then gosh, start reading some Guinness Records books and uh, some, some World Record books, because this person, together with very, very talented teams broke nine world records. Some of them just lately, uh, a Guinness record in China where Guido led uh, a project that uh, included uh, around 50 artists from all around the world and additional 50 artists from China and a crew of an additional 100 workers. And they built an entire village, one sculpture, which is an entire village from balloons from more than 350,000 balloons which is just amazing the pictures on facebook were and the videos were were inspiring and Guido is also a teacher of the art he shares his knowledge he he just uh, recently was in israel teaching for two days and he teaches all around the world hello Guido how are you <laughs> i'm very good thank you it's great uh, to be on the show thank you for being here i take my hat off for you because thank you for raising the awareness for balloons uh, in such a magnitude that is viral and that is uh, amazing and we live in amazing time these days of the golden era of balloon art and it's also because of people like you that are not afraid to raise the bar into an unlimited levels so thank you uh, i want to start by sharing uh, by asking you a few of the latest projects that you were involved in and that made you feel proud well uh, very recently uh, this year uh, we had uh, three uh, projects that were absolutely uh, wonderful and uh, markers in in my uh, career uh, so to speak uh, the first one was actually in Israel, in Maalot, where uh, we were at a sculpture art symposium. And we built a 26-meter-high uh, Dove of Peace uh, sculpture. So uh, a Dove of Freedom was the, the, the theme. And it was an amazing project uh, uh, involving like 35,000 balloons. And we worked with a, a beautiful international crew with international balloon artists, uh, local um, um, Israeli balloon artists. We worked with uh, Arabic students. So we had like a, 
uh, a, a beautiful uh, a group and uh, versatility uh, present. Um, the other project was in South Africa, where we uh, made a, a large rhino. It was called the Rhino Project, and this was an anti-poaching uh, uh, fundraiser that we actually were able to spread out all through the balloon community and eventually ended up uh, being an, an international campaign and the largest we've ever seen in the balloon community with uh, the com contribution of 35 countries uh, making local projects and uh, all sponsoring the same project. And I think it was like eventually 13 states in the States. So we had a, a huge amount of uh, publicity uh, for, for a great cause. Uh, and the last one uh, was the most recent one uh, that you were just uh, saying in the introduction, uh, the Guinness World Records uh, sculpture and the whole project, the World uh, uh, Balloon Arts Festival in China, uh, where we stayed uh, for a couple of weeks, uh, for a two-week festival with uh, not only the, the largest uh, uh, balloon uh, sculpture project uh, ever uh, done, but also the first uh, full balloon city parade and a full festival week with daily performances of, uh, uh, of balloon performers. Yes, uh, and uh, quite a, an amazing festival. Uh, if only we had that in every single uh, country, <laughs> that would be awesome. Uh, <laughs> I think it's I think it's actually possible. <laughs> yeah, one country at a time. <laughs> exactly. Um, so uh, uh, you've been involved with um, all kinds of projects, as you just mentioned, three of them. Uh, and this is not the first year that you do uh, a festival of balloons uh, of a large magnitude in China. Can you share with us a few of your past projects in China? Um, we started uh, working in China in 2007, and at the time there was absolutely nothing there. So uh, the, 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 the few decorators that were there just were hanging uh, literally balloons on paper clips on the, on the line, and that was called decor. So we started doing bigger and bigger projects there for some decor, and then we had the first real balloon projects in shopping malls. We made a huge uh, jungle, uh, deep ocean uh, world, uh, uh, very often in, in large, prestigious uh, shopping malls. And we just brought in a crew of uh, 15 to 20, 25 uh, uh, international balloon artists together with a local crew and create uh, a magical world. Uh, always based on the principle of, like, what do we want to show people? First of all, they've never seen anything with balloons. But other than that, it's like, for instance, I wanted to make a, a jungle because most people in, in China never have the opportunity to go to a jungle, to see the animals there, to, to have the experience of really walking in a rainforest. How would it be? Uh, how would it feel? So we actually brought the rainforest to their place. And, uh, and we just, like in Shanghai, uh, we, it was a rainforest with 10 meter high trees. And we could really give the, the feel to people uh, how it would be to walk in a rainforest. Wow. And that was in 2007? That was the first one? The rainforest project was actually, uh, I think, in 2012. Mm. So, uh, yeah. In total, how many projects have you did uh, of this magnitude in, in China? Uh, I think around 10 at the time, yeah, in total. Yeah, uh, on, on, on a large scale. Of course, you get smaller projects uh, in between. Yeah. yeah, amazing. And uh, you also do uh, smaller scale projects, but even smaller scale projects are, are just uh, huge, like like the Dove or the Rhino. Um, what other uh, types of projects do you do? Well, I do. Uh, it's it's very versatile. Sometimes it's uh, it's really a one piece sculpture. Um, uh, sometimes it's more like a world that you walk in, like what I was mentioning about the. Uh, the, the, the rainforest or like the, the Chinese old city that we built. It's basically like a maze, like a labyrinth of streets and different areas. Um, and sometimes it's something totally different, like uh, a balloon fashion show uh, on stage 
uh, or it's a festival with different uh, uh, performances. And this can be also uh, in, a, in a parade. So, yeah, it's more entertainment-based. Yeah. And um, when, you, when you take a look at you know, what you do on your day-to-day work, is it uh, mainly the projects? Is that the way that you uh, make a living? Or uh, also, you know, you have in your business other vectors like, I don't know, weddings, decor, or what, what, what not? Um, well, there's a lot I don't do, <laughs> and there's a lot I do actually. Well, I'm I'm not a typical decorator. To be honest, I don't see myself as a decorator. I started as a as a balloon twister, as an artist, and I'm doing decor, but I don't look at decor as. For me, decor is another word uh, uh, word for wallpaper. For me, uh, if I create something, I want to create a. Uh, an effect. I want to create magic. I want to create an emotion. So provoke an emotion. So for me, uh, decoration is uh, it has a static idea. Uh, while I say I'm I'm in the communication business, I want to create effects, and I use balloons as a communication tool. So uh, I'm not a decorator. Uh, I'm I'm not uh, locally. I'm not doing any small decor jobs I'm not, I'm not making arches for instance that's not my job uh, i want to create impact and i want to help people to communicate their message through balloons so for me that's also why i'm not limited to static things for me if i can uh, create an act with balloons and with black light and combination with led lights or with actor dancers with balloons uh, then to to make it vivid and make it come alive for me that's that's as much working with balloons and, and evolving my business as anything else yeah I think that that approach uh, is just amazing because not seeing yourself as a decorator but seeing yourself as a, a creator of emotions or of uh, atmospheres into people's lives and and even even experiences um that that shows how much you care about the art and about the people that consume the art and you actually see them you see them and you want them to not just see the art but to feel it yeah for 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 me the the the, the basic principle is uh i i have a couple of company rules that i sometimes explain when i teach is one of the things i do a lot as well internationally um is one of my first rules is nobody loves balloons. And that always creates a little weird idea if I tell this to a group of balloon artists because we always think the one thing we always say is everybody loves balloons. Oh, it's so easy to work with balloons. Everybody loves balloons. And my first rule is nobody loves balloons. And it's a, it's a weird thing in your brain. It's only to break your, your basic uh, way of thinking because we automatically, when we say, oh, everybody loves balloons, it, it almost says, oh, you don't have to do anything special with it because hey, you're going to score anyway. And I almost say the opposite. I say, like, nobody loves balloons. Like, who, who, who did you ever contact you to say, can I just order uh, an, an arch for in my bedroom because I, or in my living room? I want a column in my living room just to look at it because I love balloons, nobody ever asks you for that. So it's always connected to a goal. It's connected to, I want an arch because I have a grand opening of my store. I want the column because I have a wedding. I want, so it's connected to something. And if you understand that as a basic principle, it means balloons are a communication vehicle to accomplish something else. People want to create an effect. They want to tell something to their customers, to their guests, uh, to their friends, and they use balloons to communicate that message. And if you understand that in a, in a really deep way, it means it, it's going to help you to, to, to help them uh, in a better way to communicate what they actually want to say. Because balloons say... Uh, for instance, if you want to have balloons on the wedding, it actually says this day is important. We are going to use something 
uh, uh, we're going to make these balloons. Balloons have no purpose whatsoever than just to celebrate this moment. The balloons are the ultimate celebration of the moment. So they have no purpose at all than just be pretty and just be there. That's why the, uh, flowers have the same, uh, same impact. Flowers are just there to flourish and to make people happy. Uh, they don't have a, a purpose other than being beautiful. And that's a purpose on itself. That's, that's what art is, is, is all about. And especially balloons and flowers, because they only live in this moment, the next moment they're, they're dead, they are the perfect symbol of the celebration of the moment. So people use these two materials to celebrate parties, to, to show this is an important day, this is our wedding, or this is our com uh, communion, or our, our special day, and we want to show everybody that this day is so special that we take a lot of effort to only show this day. And if you understand this, it's totally different than let's make it quickly an arch and put an arch up, but hey, how can we help you to communicate your message better to your guests or to your clients? I love it. This is perfect because you're not at, uh, in the balloon business at all. You, you are, you know, the balloons are the medium. You are in the special effects uh, or, uh, business or in the communication business of, you yeah. know. It, it's I always almost, say, yeah. I always say I'm in the advertisement industry. I, that, I'm in the advertisement business. That, that's what I, that was my first point. My, my next point was that you are a media company. You're a media yeah. company and yeah. you help people to pass a message and the message on a wedding is we are celebrating the now, uh, which is very important for us and very special for us. It's just one special, special day, the day of our coming together into, into marriage. And um, that, that, that's beautiful. And what, what, what do you think about um, when you're helping a corporate company uh, in decoration? Uh, what would be the story, the message that you are helping them to, to pass? Well, it depends on, uh, on each company. Basically, any, com uh, any company who calls me for, if it's an, uh, an event or a grand opening or whatever it is, the first thing I want to find out is what do you want to communicate to your, your, uh, your clients? What is your goal with what you're doing? And sometimes they have no idea. And then I really go to their website. And the first thing I just do is like, so what are your company goals? What is, what is in the core? What do you want to do? What do you want to sell? What do you want to, who, who do you want to be? How do you want to uh, promote yourself? And then I try to translate this into a 3D shape and say, okay, okay, this, now I understand what you want to, how you want to show yourself. And now I can, can, translate this into b balloons and i think that once you go uh into that you know one step uh, on top of what we are being requested to do and you're actually you care about your customers that you want to help them uh present themselves you want to help them achieve their goal uh that that's that that's the way to think about it you're serving your customer much better and when you do that you also Uh, create a situation where your perceived value is totally different. It's not, they're not paying you money to buy some uh, balloons and uh, put them in quadros and uh, build something or to connect those uh, link balloons or quick links. You're being paid because you're actually creating a situation where the message of your customer, the company, is being conveyed in a way that people remember. And that's a exactly. lot in these days. That's a really yeah, a lot. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's the biggest reason why I say I'm not in the decorating industry, but I'm in the advertisement industry, because decorating, basically, that's the leftover budgets. Like, if you look at any party, if you look at any company who says, okay, we have a grand opening, let's, uh, we have a shop and we're going to open, so we need to spend money for that. And then, in the end, when they spend all their money, for the advertisement in the newspapers and to make everything nice and maybe the food or location or whatever, uh, maybe some entertainment. And then, oh, oh yeah, we also need some decoration. Oh, yeah, what do we have left in the pocket? So we always get the leftover budgets. And then that's for an arch because they want to make it look pretty in the end. And that's something I'm not interested in because I can add so much more. When they say, hey, I want an arch in front of my store, I ask them, Why would you like an arch? Are you selling arches? 
And then they're like, uh, what do you mean? I don't know. We have a phone house. We have a phone store, but uh, uh, we just want an arch in front of the store. But, oh, I'm sorry. I'm confused because I thought you were selling arches because an arch doesn't communicate more than this is an opening here. But uh, there's no visual connection between the arch and what your store is. If we can make two phones in front of your uh, store, in, in, in uh, two phones made out of balloons, then this will have a bigger impact and people will remember it. And when they go home, they still remember where they saw the phones. All of a sudden, you switch their brain and you help them to understand that we create uh, an advertisement value to them. And then you open up another budget because the biggest budget in companies is advertisement. It's not decor. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's an amazing uh, way of looking at it. Um, so uh, you teach all around the world. And uh, in, in general, when people want to learn from you, um, is that usually by, you know, crossing fingers and hoping that you will visit their country like you did in Israel and did a two-day uh, um, event, educational event? Or is, it, is there a way to, to learn from you, from your ways, from your uh, uh, techniques uh, that is... Uh, more direct um well yeah more direct than meeting me in person uh, <laughs> is difficult well there are actually three uh, three ways uh yeah first of all i try to visit as much countries as possible and and really interact with people one-on-one uh, or, or in, in the classroom uh, the second thing is uh, we try to organize large sculpture projects and also have the opportunity for, for people locally to just uh, meet and 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 join a large culture project uh, because a hands-on experience is the fastest way to learn. Uh, and the third thing is uh, through, uh, through media. Um, at the moment, I have 11 workshop DVDs out and uh, uh, eight with uh, Linkaloons, uh, the, the system I use the most. And uh, yeah, we try to, to push them as much uh, worldwide uh, to distributors to help people to understand the techniques cool and uh, we'll talk about how where people can find those uh, workshop dvds uh, later at the end of the of the uh, interview i want to talk with you about some of your doctrines on the way that you manage your projects and your business and that is uh, the guild doctrine uh, this is very fascinating uh, please first give us some an overview of what is the guild doctrine okay um, well, it starts actually with the, the, the general idea that um, we can uh, achieve more uh, as artists, as professionals, uh, when we work together than competing. So this goes into a very deep belief that I have that uh, in our society, especially in the, uh, um, the, the democratic society, the capitalistic way of thinking, is we get trained to compete. And instead of competing, um, it's actually more natural to work together and you can win more. Like uh, it's, it's a very simple uh, idea if you're playing cards, you're playing poker, and uh, then if you all hold your cards and you don't share, um, it's very simple. The one who's best in, in their poker face or cheating with your face uh, wins. But what happens if you all throw the cards open on the table and you can say, okay, let's, let's work together and you can find all the combinations that you have the best, all have the best cards. So sharing always wins over competing. Uh, and, and I say it's a natural, uh, it's actually a, the natural way of growth uh, because you can already see that in, in every human being, in everything in nature, cells organisms they grow because they cooperate one cell cooperates with the next one they duplicate and they grow so every every cell that starts competing kills and uh, grows slower so it's a it's a different way of thinking uh, and and uh, i don't want to have a, a, a full uh, discussion with uh, business companies who say but but we can grow faster because we are killing our competition. I think especially for the arts, uh, for the, the form we work in, uh, in, in, we're all small businesses, if you look at it on a on global scale. Uh, 
working together always brings you more fast where you want to be. And the whole balloon industry is is a great example uh, of that uh, principle because within 50, 60 year time, our industry became an industry because everybody has open sharing. When I started working with balloons in 1991, there was nothing. And I couldn't move very far outside of my own little box, out of my own little way of thinking, because there was just no educational material. It was very difficult to grow. Uh, the moment, uh, because of social media, because of the conventions, when everybody starts sharing openly, the art industry grew, grew more fast than you can imagine. If you look at it with similar industries like uh, the, uh, the magic uh, society, where everybody keeps their own ideas, it's more difficult to grow when, when you don't share. So uh, this whole uh, uh, open, open world um, uh, creates more opportunities. So how do you um, um, uh, transform that into your day-to-day -day business? Yeah. Because wherever I go, the first thing people say, uh, in any, any country it's the same, so I have my local competition, and it's across the street, I have another shop, and they are actually my competition, and I'm making an arch, and I'm uh, asking 100 euro, and they are asking 90 or 80, and they're stealing my customers, and everybody has a brain that thinks about competition. So, and it's very difficult to break that. So the first, the first rule is uh, look at look at art, and if you talk about the uh, the way of how craftsmen, because basically, okay, you can talk about art as, as art or high art or low art, but let let's talk about uh, balloons as a craft. We are craftsmen, uh, and we have a craftsmanship working with the the latex products, making things. So um, uh, craftsmen uh, organizations have been uh, craftsmen uh, have been working together uh, in groups throughout all centuries, and these were called uh, um, in the Middle Ages they were called guilds. But it's actually an older system. In the Old Testament, they're already talking about masters and apprentices. Uh, in, the, in in Egypt, they were working uh, with with masters. In the Old Roman time, in the Greek times. The, the monks, they conquered the world with the monasteries. How was it possible that the monasteries were all over the world and grew? Basically, it's, it's an amazing franchise model, if you look, look at it from that perspective. Because, uh, and it was in, in around 1200 after Christ. Uh, it's because the, the, the monks, they were sharing their knowledge freely uh, on how to brew uh, beer, how to garden, how to make medicines. And basically, they, they had a very strict system uh, of working together. And in the Middle Ages, this is the most uh, uh, common example, is they created guilds. People who, with the same craftsmanship, with the same uh, art skills, literature, paintings, poets, they, they created guilds to, to work together and find jobs together. Uh, and this was all based on uh, a very clear uh, uh, system with rules of how many years of experience you have, how many years uh, uh, of uh, uh, teaching, of what did you accomplish in this time. Uh, so you have, have very clear rules about the level of, uh, of each artist. Uh, because it starts with knowing where you are and uh, who you are. So what we actually did in, in, in Holland now is we work together with eight companies. And uh, this is uh, basically the, the, the modern version of, uh, of the guild system. Basically, you call it, uh, now we could, we could say it's a tribe. Um, so uh, these eight companies were all independent contractors, independent artists with their with our own small balloon com uh, uh, company. Sometimes only one or two or three people working in the company, and that's wonderful. What we do now is we work together, you share all together. You share your knowledge together, you share your equipment, uh, uh, your, even your clients, uh, your ideas, you can even... Uh, you can make a really strong pact 
of working together. And as soon as you let go of any fear of uh, competition or losing anybody, basically what you do is uh, it's the, the, the old art of war, eh? the Chinese uh, Sun Tzu uh, that you use. is like if an army uh, fights another army, maybe you win, maybe you lose. And if you win, you still have, if you have the bigger army, you will probably win, but you will have some, some loss. Uh, the other side will lose. But what happens if an army doesn't fight another army, but says, let's work together, let's be one army, all of a sudden your army is twice as, twice as big. So this, this is the real reason how you can grow more fast. And uh, this is the principle we use. So I, I love to make friends and, and just grow because I generously believe we are all in the same army in, uh, as balloon artists uh, because we're in the army of sharing happiness in this world, more creativity, and we haven't reached our full potential as an industry yet at all. I think now we're maybe it's... 60%, but that's me talking as uh, Bill Gates about uh, how much uh, uh, <laughs> how much gigs uh, we need in a computer. Uh <laughs> <laughs> so who knows where the future will lead us. Yeah, and uh, let, let me just uh, rephrase it because it makes so, so much sense. Uh, working together can allow us to grow faster and to uh, achieve bigger, bigger achievements, which will help every single member of the guild. And there are so many practical questions that I want to ask you, and I'm sure that you will explain like about you know, the monetary <laughs> terms and stuff like that. But let's start even before that. Like, let's assume that later in this interview, people will already know how fair it is to be in a guild. And um, so, so I want the listeners to you know, breathe and not worry about that for a second. I want to ask you about how a guild is formed to begin with, because really like um, I can imagine a few co companies in the Netherlands or whatever would love to join the guild, right? <laughs> right? Yeah. So, so yeah. obviously there was like the birth of a guild or the growth of it from, from two companies or from, from, from four companies to eight. How was it for you? Um, in Holland, actually, and this is how most guild systems are actually formed, it's almost a, a natural, it starts as a, a natural movement. It's more a movement than a decision of now let's start this sometimes. And... Uh, Because if you understand really the, the rules, if I would explain you really like this is, then you are a guild and this is how the, the, the rules of the guild work, then you look around and then you think, wait a second, I'm already doing that. Hey, wait a second, I, I, like, I already have like 50% of, of your rules I'm already applying in my company and I'm already working together with a colleague and we're good friends and we already share jobs. Well, that's the start of a guild that's already there. Because I'm not saying anything uh, weird. This is a natural way. I'm, I was starting with cells communicate together and, and work together, and then it's a natural growth. So also the guild is a natural. Uh, it, it's a natural system uh, that you can follow, uh, and it's more unnatural actually to compete. Um, so um, in, in Holland, it started uh, literally with a few artists that like I started uh, uh, training people within my company. And then at one point, I, um, even my business philosophy about how I run my company is different. What I found out, you know, I started with an entertainment company uh, that grew bigger and bigger. And I was trying to... Um, Uh, find a manager who could run my company so I had more artistic freedom. And it happened to me a couple of times in a row that every time when I actually uh, uh, really uh, got a good manager and I trained him and he was capable of running my company, then the manager thought, wow, this is great. I know how to run a company. Let's run my own company now. And then they start their own and you basically built your own competition. So, and this is a very uh, 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 natural thing, actually, uh, which feels really bad because you say, I invested in a person to work in my company, and then they leave, and I even had it happen that they left with my clients, my clientele, my, uh, like, with a lot of uh, stuff. Um, 
And I also believe when you don't play fair by the rules, in time uh, things will uh, will catch up with you. So I'm never worried about that. But um, at one point, I almost had like an epiphany. to said, like, you know, it's actually logic that people want to grow. And if I cannot provide the, the means to, to have them grow, uh, like after uh, 911, basically, when the whole world economy collapsed and went down, also the entertainment uh, industry that was really having a golden century uh, before that uh, just got down and down. And it was very difficult for me. I was working with 40 artists uh, to, to, to feed them. We had seven people working in the office. It's like, how can you uh, feed everybody? Um, so you also have a big responsibility. Then I found out it's better to release people, to free them fully, and to train them and say, basically, as you are, and I see myself more as a, 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 a father bird and saying, okay, I, I, I grow you and I feed you in the nest. And at one point, now you're big enough, go. And now you're big enough to, to, to be self-supporting. So now leave the nest and start your own company. So what I try to do is create my own competition, basically. But not really, because I don't believe in competition. So what I actually do is I create allies, but fully independent, strong allies. So, and instead of saying, okay, now you're on your own, good luck, and you never see me again. So like, okay, now you're strong enough, start your own company, but I'm still here, and we're going to work together as partners. Now you're not my employee anymore, now we're going to be business partners. Let's grow together. And it's a very simple principle because people are always more motivated to work for their own, on their own house than on somebody else's house. So when I say to my uh, former employee, just try to, to create as much comp uh, business as possible and, and, and find clients, he will work really hard be between uh, uh, nine to five. But when it's his own company, he will work more for his own company. But in the end of the day, when you still work together, it's all the same. And it all ends up in one big pot and you're all going to uh, uh, benefit from it. This is interesting because it's very counterintuitive because you're creating your competition, but you don't treat them as competition. You treat them as allies, as people that actually, you know, help to uh, grow the market as a whole. So when you know that you've created a good ally for yourself, you know that it will actually help you eventually down the road to grow uh, a, by yourself. And um, I, I assume that there are ways to maintain fairness within the guild uh, as, uh, because there are so many you know, aspects of that people might be afraid of, like how do you share um, the income from an event? How do you split it? How do you uh, make sure that everyone feels go good about it and that the rules are clear to everyone? Can you share with us a little bit about that? Yeah, okay. The, the first rule, what we, what we use is be extremely open. Be absolutely open about the money, about how it's going to be shared. And the more open you are, uh, the more easy it is. Uh, as, as a company, we work uh, a lot with event companies who hire us. The best event companies in Holland are the companies that actually share all the information with everybody. So they, they have a customer who is hiring uh, them to, to do a job, and they hire us. So what they do is actually they... They, they sign the contract with the artists, uh, with, the, with, with the, the decorating company, and they sign the contract with the, the clients. And all the prices, in, including their cuts, their, their commission in the middle, everything is on the paper. So it's very clear that, okay, they ask 10 or 15% for a job. This is what we get. This is what they pay. This is in, in the middle. And everything is open because the moment it's covered, Nobody really knows uh, uh, what's going on. What's going on? And you had a lot of uh, examples uh, of, of uh, uh, companies who try to 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 get a, a bigger cut or steal basically a part of the uh, the cut. And then uh, sometimes uh, 
if if I get hired to do a job for 500 uh, euro and the client is paying 1500 euro, they expect me to do a job for 1500. And then you get uh, automatically uh, problems. So this completely open structure um, asks trust, but also gives trust. So the first rule is just to be open with the prices. Now, the second thing what we do is basically we have a very simple system of like, okay, we have a job. Uh, I, I got a job and I have a job for five people. Then I can say, okay, great. Um, I'm, this is my budget. This is my overall budget. And now I'm going to uh, cut it into seven parts. So we have five people who are all going to do one-fifth of the job. Then we have a, 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 an extra part for uh, me to, because I have the organizational part to make the contract and maybe make the design, uh, order the balloons, all the stuff. So I get an extra cut of that and I get an extra cut for getting the job because it's my uh, customer and I got the job in the first place. So this is a very simple structure. Uh, you can work on the details and of course when you have the material costs, etc., you have to, uh, uh, to work a little bit more on the details. But if, if this is like the general structure, it's super simple for everybody, and sometimes we don't even know when a, 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 one of my friends, uh, uh, one of my colleagues is, is hiring me for a job. He knows he's going to get a good person who's going to help him with the job. I don't actually know how much I will get for the job sometimes, because the cut sometimes is a little bit less than I expected, uh, or sometimes it's more. But uh, because sometimes you have uh, customers who are uh, like like sometimes it's it's a it's a customer who doesn't have that much money or uh, you have uh, uh, unexpected costs that normally would kill a job and would give you a, a a a big loss on the project. But now what you also do is you take your loss divided by the amount of people that you work with. So. You basically share the risk together, and the other time you are lucky and you have a big job and you make more profit, and everybody makes more profits. Yeah, uh, let me ask you a few questions just to clarify if I understand you correctly. Uh, so, for example, on a situation where you need five people to work, uh, uh, that that will include you. So, for example, if you are one of those five, you will get one cut for your from the seven cuts. One cut for the organization, one cut for bringing the job, and then another cut because you also work in the job. Yeah, exactly. So three out of four, uh, out of seven. And uh, what happens if you have a work, a gig which is only for two people or three oh, people? Well, if if it's uh, let's say if it's a, a job for two people, then the same uh, the same rule applies. Like uh, so, you, you, you basically add two. You always add two. Yeah. And then, yeah. Uh, so for example, if two people are doing a gig together for two businesses, they, they uh, take the income, divide it by four, and uh, one cut for each worker in the event, and one cut for organization, because that's, that also includes the material, if I understand you correctly. Um, well, the materials is, is separate. Uh, separate. The, the material costs are separate from it. So you first de de you first take out the material cost. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So so you yeah. actually this, your the split of the cuts is from profit. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. We, yeah. we'll, we, so well, I, it's a profit, profit and and salary, basically. Yeah. Yeah, because profit is something different than salary. But, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. So, so, and uh, I, I'm going to be a little bit nitpicking here just to make sure that I understand correctly because I really like the idea. Um, so, w w will people need to tell you how much the fuel costs to them? Is that yeah? Every like okay. Um, if we let's say uh, let's have a hypothesis of a, of a, of a job. Uh, we have a job of uh, a big decor job, and the client has um, uh, 10,000 uh, 10, euro. Yeah. So, okay, well, this is a 10,000 euro job. Now, to do this job, I need four of my colleagues. We need to do the job with five people. So, uh, in the end, uh, I said, I, I okay, we have 10,000. Well, that, that must be enough. 
for for everybody, but I don't know exactly what's going to happen yet. So after the event, everybody sends in their receipts of their their fuel. Uh, maybe they they bought some material costs or anything. Plus, I'm going to add all the material costs of the the materials that I bought for the for the gig. And let's say we had two thousand. Uh, for all the materials and all the fuel and all the costs, so we have still 8,000 left. So from that 8,000, now I'm going to d- divide it into uh, five people personnel, basically, who did the job, plus one extra cut for the office and one extra cut for the person who brings in uh, the fee, the, the founder's fee, basically. That's now uh, very clear. Will there be any problem of choosing the five people out of the guild because maybe, you know, the other three peop- companies in the guild, they also want to work. So how do you manage uh, choosing the people for your gig? Okay, There's, uh, there are two things that are important uh, uh, to understand a little bit about, uh, um, about that. First of all, you work uh, based on experience and on what the, the, everybody has their own s- sets of skills. So you really look at the skills you need and the persons uh, you work with. But another thing is also is you work on ethnicity, like like how how many years somebody's working with you. Uh, like if somebody has been working with you and or doing that job already in the past for ten years, then you are going to ask him before you're going to ask somebody who just arrived new. So you have to to earn your spot. And you can grow within the guild, getting more requests uh, if you're new in the guild by uh, adding something unique to the mix and doing a, a good job. So, but you have to prove yourself in a way because yes, if you're new to the to the group and you're number eleven on the list, well, it's going to be more difficult if the most jobs are five or six. You will more quickly uh, see that the the people who are there from the beginning will get asked. Quicker, so you have to work harder to 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 earn your spots. Basically, that makes sense. Uh, yeah. The, the 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 second thing is, and that is a, diff- a difference. Uh, sometimes the payment of somebody is uh, uh, because I'm now I'm giving the very simple idea of the different cuts, but um, this uh, to to be a little bit more correct into detail. Uh, there is a, a versatility about the, the exact cuts that somebody gets if they are on a different level. Like a master could get a master cut while a, an apprentice gets an apprentice cut, which means, uh, 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 like, for instance, in our, in our case, a master would maybe get 400 uh, euro to, to help on the gig, while an apprentice would get 250 euro. Because they're still learning and they don't have the experience. Because 20 years of experience and also uh, investing in education, uh, it's something totally uh, different. So you also have to reward it in a little, little bit different way. And who can can make the shot of saying, okay, you're getting an apprentice cut and you're getting a master's cut? Basically, on each project, the one who gets the job is the responsible, is the captain He's of that the master. ship. He's, he's uh, yeah, but, well, it, let's not say the master, but he's, he's the captain of that project. Yeah. So he can divide it how he finds it uh, in, in a logic way. But uh, you, what you create when you start with the guild and you start working together is you get like a natural uh, hierarchy. And in the natural hierarchy, the people with the most experience who are working the longest time who are actually educating others, they are the masters. Like if you look at the, 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 the we're talking about there, there are five different levels, a little bit too much work to, to go through all the levels. But one of the things of the master is uh, basically you have to have uh, uh, so many years of experience, 10,000 hours of, of working experience. Uh, you uh, need to be able to have a certain level of being uh, accepted also by other masters of uh, being uh, uh, one of the top in your segments, um, uh, but also have the opportunity or the, the ability to teach others. So a master is also a teacher. But because you're a teacher, it gives you uh, authority. 
automatically. And this automatically uh, pushes you higher in a rank or in a hierarchy. And if I work together with a colleague and I have to explain him what to do automatically, this gives me a higher hierarchy. But it also is more fair then that I would get more paid because I'm actually teaching somebody else and teaching is also a value. So he's also getting paid in a natural way, in a different way. That's wonderful because for, for the, for the a member of the guild that is learning, that's one of his ways to grow. And so he's being paid to learn, which is yeah. just better. Um, exactly. I, I totally get it. I totally get it. So uh, you mentioned before you share everything. You share your resources. You share your, uh, your agendas and your positioners and your um, equipment and your knowledge. Is there a situation where there's also an expertise? Like, for example... Uh, you know that someone is just perfect for columns and they are not interested into, I don't know, quick link walls or link loon walls. So you, you bring on the expert for columns or something like that. Will, that, will this uh, be like a day-to-day -day, um, matter in the, in the life of a guild? It really depends on the kind of jobs you bring in. Uh, and it also depends on, on the group you have. If you have a... a, a let's say, a traditional balloon decorating group, uh, a guild, uh, you will automatically get more traditional jobs. Uh, and the, the moment you, you have a customer who asks something special, you need to find a specialist. And we actually work very internationally, so we also bring in more and more international talent. Uh, and especially in Europe, for instance, it's easy to just fly in somebody. For a couple of hundred euro. To fly in a specialist from another country um, and they are going to add something unique to the project that, that's awesome that's awesome it makes so much sense that's a very interesting uh, concept of the guild doctrine and how you implement it is just very logical and i love it uh, can you share with me uh in case people want to learn more about this because you have an entire Uh, philosophy around it and, and more, more and more details like the different five levels and that, that's you know information that some people might need or want um, so wh what should people do if they want to learn more I've actually been studying it for uh, a long time and before I, I just started teaching it actually this year so the first time was at the advanced balloon decorating convention in Las Vegas uh, where I always uh, come up with uh, the newest the newest things so uh, uh, I've been teaching there about the, 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 the evolution of the balloon industry the threats uh, of the industry uh, potential threats of the industry and also about the, the, the guild system uh, but be, because before I'm, I'm going to to share anything I want to first find out how it actually works so we've been uh, working with the system in Holland for a long time And I'm still putting it uh, on the paper um, uh, because I, it's probably going to end up in a book or in a, in a big article. And in the meantime, I am actually telling sometimes about it, um, sharing it about it in, in classes or uh, seminars. So uh, it depends on the, the conventions uh, where you see my face. Uh, there's always something to share. <laughs> That's wonderful. So if you hear that uh, Guido Verhoff is arriving to your country, then definitely uh, check up with uh, wherever he teaches and you can learn more about that. And uh, Guido, if you have, uh, you know, one, by the time that this goes live, if you have some progress and maybe made uh, a book available or, or something like that, please uh, let me know so that I can share it with the uh, Balloon Artist Podcast Nation. Um, and uh, I would like to talk with you a little bit about the threats to the industry. We had a, a discussion about this when you were in Israel. It was actually quite, <laughs> I, I lost a few nights of sleep after that uh, <laughs> discussion. So, so if you don't want to, uh, if you want to make sure you're not falling asleep while driving now, uh, listen up because... There are some, some concerns that you uh, identified and you have, you have a very broad way of looking at things uh, because of your experience for a few tens of years and also because of the magnitude of the projects and, and uh, 
I, I would like for you to share with us a few of the threats that you identified for our beloved industry. <laughs> yeah, um, well, it started with me with the um, uh, investigation of the balloon industry, uh, how it evolved. So, uh, and we already talked about it uh, in the beginning, it's like it's very interesting to know where the balloon industry actually started and how the evolution will go in the future. And uh, one of the beautiful things is that we say, like, by sharing and, uh, and by focusing more on advertisement, on uh, understanding the full potential we have, we can actually grow faster and faster and bigger and bigger. But uh, next to the positive side of the, 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 the story that everybody sees on a daily basis, there's also uh, a, a few serious threats that could, that could actually potentially um, uh, influence the balloon industry and already do on some levels. And I've just uh, been studying uh, the different threats that I've seen because I travel and I see uh, balloon artists and balloon, local balloon industries all over the world in five continents. So, and I talk to uh, uh, distributors, I talk to balloon artists, manufacturers, uh, and and ask what they think and what they how they feel. Uh, how the industry is moving. And I've seen some very concerning things that normally we never like to talk about because everybody likes a happy story, but nobody likes to talk about, but what if? So these are actually doom scenarios, which could actually be, be more close to the truth than uh, you can imagine. And I actually found five different ones Oh my God, five different threats. And that's the end of the interview for this week. On next week, you will hear about those threats of our industry and even might find some, some ideas of what you can do to help maybe minimize those threats wherever you are. I want to share with you what, some of my takeaways from the interview. I really appreciate Guido's Verhoff's art and projects and, and accomplishments. I take my hats off and then some, but I really love also the simplicity of the way that he works with his partners and with his allies. And the fact that he has created a guild of balloon artists, that by itself is an amazing accomplishment. So thank you for listening for the show. I hope that you take something about the guild and put it into play in your area. Next week, we will hear Guido again, and that would be exciting. I want to share with you about uh, the Dance Floor Experiences Blueprint. Uh, this is an online video resource that I've created together with Karen Friedman-Bracha, and that resource includes more than 60 designs uh, for hats and slap bracelets and bracelets and uh, headbands and other designs that are suitable for dancing people, that are suitable for people that are in a dance floor and that creates different experiences uh, for people that are dancing in a dance floor. Um, the way that we package this online course is that we have also provided you with the marketing material, all the pictures and the videos, and all the tutorials and all kinds of tutorials about business and about the operation of a dance floor and how to create a business around it. I'm so happy to offer you three videos for free from the Dance Floor Experiences Blueprint. All you need to do is go to dancefloorexperiences.com and sign up for your free three videos. And those videos are we already receive tons of feedbacks from people that love their videos and also from the many uh, people that already signed up for DFEB. Uh, they seem very happy with the results and with the value that they're getting from the online course. So go to the dancefloorexperiences.com for your free videos. So see you next week in the Balloon Artist Podcast. This show is sponsored by Brody's Balloons. 
Hello Balloon Artist Podcast Nation, it's Zivi Kivi again and this is the tip section in season 4, chapter 1, the first part of the Guido interview and my tip today might seem strange but it might change your course of life one day uh, if you listen to it and it's related to how to smell great. And it might come very weird. Why, why are you listening to a tip about how to smell great from uh, Zivi Kivi, the host of the Balloon Artist podcast? So the, the answer is that it turns out because of feedback that I've received in Twist and Shout that I was able to beacon on the territory of smell. And the way that I did that, it's kind of funny. I used cologne three times a day and... When I spray cologne on my neck, I make sure it hits the fabric as well. And I spray five times. That's the truth. And for some reason, that created some kind of a mega effect because people met me in the morning. I smelled great. They met me in the afternoon. I already replenished my cologne. So it still smelled great and even uh, later at night. And I even had someone make a post on Facebook. The only thing they wanted to point out is the fact that I smell great. This is obviously quite embarrassing to talk about it. However, I want you to know, because I think there's something here about the human interaction that it's better to smell good. It can help you in your business. If you experiment with that, maybe, maybe that could uh, even lead to some kind of an experience in your life. So, I hope that uh, you've enjoyed today's tip. It came from the bottom of my heart and I really hope that you can get value out of that. I believe that you can. I'm Zivi Kivi and I will be seeing you either on the Dance Floor Experiences blueprint on dancefloorexperiences.com or next week on the Balloon Artist Podcast.